Hello and welcome to the Monash Perioperative Medicine podcast series. I'm Dr. Ongley. And I'm Dr. Alan Pierce. And today we're delighted to be joined by Professor Robert Sanders. Professor Sanders has recently relocated to Australia, where he is the Nuffield Chair of Anesthetics at the University of Sydney. Prior to this, he was at the University of Wisconsin for five years, where his team conducted research on the pathogenesis of delirium, the role of inflammation in cognitive dysfunction, and the mechanisms of anesthesia. He sits on the editorial board of the British Journal of Anesthesia, and today we're very lucky to speak with him about his research, Perioperative Covert Stroke, and the Neurovision Cohort Study, published in The Lancet in 2019. Welcome, Professor Sanders. Well, thank you very much for uh, having me on the show. Uh, thank you. So to start off, can you please tell us about your research interests? Yeah, so I, I kind of have two domains of interest. One in which we're really interested in how uh, perioperative events can change cognition in the short term in the context of delirium and whether those have more longer term sequelae that would lead to longer term cognitive changes and decline. Um, and that's an area which we've been uh, avidly exploring in Wisconsin and we got NNHR1 to, to, to study. The other domain of my research is how anesthesia affects consciousness and cognition directly and we think these are separable aims um, and we're uh, we're delighted that we've just got NIH funding to, to pursue that further and understand the mechanisms through which uh, anesthesia changes both consciousness and cognition is a nice foil for us to understand all the perioperative changes which also occur. Professor Sanders, can you tell us about the Neurovision study in particular, why you undertook the study and what you found? Yeah, so um, credit to um, uh, the group in McMaster's in Canada who put together this, this study, which I think was really important. Uh, they uh, showed in a large cohort of more than a thousand patients um, that covert stroke uh, was associated with longer term changes in cognition over a year. And we got involved because we recognized the importance of this study. We were interested in perioperative changes in cognition. And we felt that uh, this was a um, substantial study that needed to be supported and would provide important information on the incidence of ischemic brain injury in the perioperative period. Um, so, Professor Sanders, I might ask you um, for your opinion of what a general anaesthetist can take away from Neurovision and whether there's kind of any changes that, that we can make to our daily practice to reduce the risk um, for patients. Well, I think firstly, one of the headlines from the paper is that 7% of patients had a covert stroke. And, that seemingly is quite an alarming rate through which this, these small lesions, which are detected on an MRI scan without an obvious neurological uh, clinical effect, um, the incidence of that is, is, is pretty profound. And if that could be linked, as was shown in the Neurovision study to long-term cognitive decline, then that does imply that there are events occurring in the perioperative period to a vulnerable brain that we could potentially intervene and prevent um, from occurring. So but to follow on from that, do you, do you, I know that it wasn't specifically investigated in Neurovision, but do you have a, an opinion or is there a role for kind of research into potentially specific therapeutics to decrease the risk like antiplatelet agents or statins or anticoagulants um, to target specifically this group? Yeah, so I think before we um, embark upon therapeutic studies, I think there's a lot that can be done in the observational uh, research realm here because... Uh, we know very little about the pathophysiology underlying these events. Now, um, 
we know from the, the, the nature of the lesions, they're relatively small lesions. They didn't really occur in watershed zones in the brain. They were more diffuse. Um, and it's seemingly that uh, given that there could be multiple uh, of these lesions occurring at once, that it would be more like an embolic phenomenon rather than um, some sort of hypotensive event that was driving a watershed type infarct. That said, we need to prove that. We need to go out there and identify, uh, the, find the incidence of emboli uh, in these patients. We need better time resolution as to when these events are occurring. So it makes, with the MRI scanning, what happens is you can pick up these lesions for about nine days. So we'd scan the patients between day two and day nine postoperatively. So that could have occurred even right on the day of surgery or it could be, could, could be occurring on day eight for some people. And that time window, would, uh, is a very wide time window for us to be targeting an intervention. If the, all these events are occurring on the day of surgery, um, then we need to, to target our intervention separately to when, if these occurring, are occurring in the post-operative period outside of um, the sort of immediate auspices of uh, an anesthetist. So I, I think we need to understand the timing of these events, the pathophysiology, etiology of these events better, and, and, uh, and also, um, more about even the, the baseline features of these patients and why some of these patients sh will shower, potentially shower emboli in the perioperative patient period, pardon me, perioperative period, and others won't. Specifically with that, uh, there were 7% of patients that did have a covert stroke, and you mentioned that 13% demonstrated multiple acute infarcts. Do you have an opinion as to the etiology of these multiple acute infarcts? And... I guess specifically potential causes for these showering events? Yeah, so I mean, I think, you know, there are some, some sub-studies of neurovision which are ongoing, including telemetry sub-studies to look at arrhythmias. Um, I think it's important for us, for us to also exclude that there are important changes in uh, perioperative uh, blood pressure that could account for some of the the, the, some of the pathophysiology of these lesions. That, that, that itself is unlikely to account for the emboli, but it could account for whether these emboli um, produce significant lesions or not on the MRI scan. I think we should also be looking to confirm uh, this type of toxicity in, in different ways and investigate whether patients, for example, who are vulnerable have carotid disease or not. So there, there's plenty of research which can be performed in this, this area still to try and uh, understand. Now, obviously, an incidence of 7% is alarming from a public health perspective and um, difficult to study from a research angle because that means you have to study a lot of people who aren't going to have a covert stroke to, to understand um, uh, what is happening in those individuals who do have a covert stroke. And that was one of the reasons why Neurovision was important because it was done on such a, a large scale. But um, that's a huge funding um, mission to be able to do a thousand MRI scans. So there's a, there's a lot that needs to be done in this space, and I doubt it'll be done quickly, unfortunately. Um, Professor Sanders, moving on, in, in the Neurovision study, there was no um, non-surgical control group. And one of the outcomes was that 29% of patients who didn't have a covert stroke still had evidence of cognitive decline at one year. What do you see as the significance of this finding? Yeah, that's, that's an excellent question. And I would urge people not to interpret that 29%. What's important here in this study is the relative difference between the patients who had covert strokes and those that didn't have covert strokes. So comparing the 7% with covert strokes and then the 93% without. 
And the reason that's important is that we can interpret that relative difference. So we could say that there's approximately doubling in the odds ratio of cognitive decline if you had a covert stroke in the perioperative period. It is also worth us saying that those people who had perioperative covert strokes were more likely to have substantial uh, neurological insults in the subsequent year. So they're more likely to have strokes and TIAs in the subsequent year. So it may not be that the perioperative event is the sentinel event that's driving any change in cognition, but these subsequent events. And whether these patients who've got covert strokes in the perioperative period are having COVID strokes all the time, or there's, there's some sort of de novo pathological change in these individuals, which means that they go on to have more cerebrovascular disease over the subsequent year and cognitive decline is unclear. So there's a lot to unpick in that. Regarding the non-surgical controls, now the distribution of data is such that 29% represents one tail of that cognitive tail of the distribution. And, and if you looked at for the people who had cognitive improvement, you'd probably see a similar number. So what you can do is, you can, without a non-surgical control group, you can't interpret that the cognitive decline in the people who did not have COVID strokes. You can interpret the relative change with the COVID stroke, but we need a control group for that 29% to be able to interpret whether that's a meaningful change or just the noise that we would expect in an experiment. Um, so I might also um, ask you about um, some of your other research, specifically the, the Whitehall 2 cohort study that, that you were part of that had longer term um, follow-up and, and ask you about the incidence of covert stroke um, and cognitive decline and how they kind of linked it to this paper and to your other research. Yeah, so we, we've been um, working in this area for quite a while to try and understand what's the right experimental paradigm to answer whether perioperative events induce a longer-term cognitive decline. And there is no one experiment that's foolproof for us. With the, with the designs and the resources which we have presently, we're not able to definitively answer that question. We think that this analysis of the Whitehall 2 study was as close as we can get presently. And what that Whitehall 2 study had was 7,500 patients um, collected uh, cognitive data from those 7,500 patients over 20 years, essentially. And we were able to establish what their cognitive trajectory was before and after different admissions, be they medical admissions or surgical admissions. And through looking at understanding what someone's cognitive trajectory was before an, uh, an admission and looking how it changed after the admission, we were able to say whether they deviated from their cognitive trajectory. What we found was that while on average the contribution of surgery to long-term changes in cognition was very small, about equivalent to about five months of cognitive aging. So it's like having a, a surgery leaps you forward five months along your own cognitive trajectory. It still was a, a, um, an enrichment in the number of people who had substantial decline. And the way we define substantial decline was to say, we can predict off your first three cognitive tests where you should end up on your fourth cognitive test. And if you deviated by approximately two standard deviations where we, from where we predicted you'd be, we'd say you had a substantial decline. So you'd expect from the way that we defined that, that about two and a half percent of healthy controls would fall into that um, category of a substantial decline. Five and a half percent of patients undergoing major surgeries, we defined it, fell into that um, category. And that five and a half percent represented, it represented approximately doubling in the, the odds ratio of ending, ending up with a substantial decline for patients who had major surgery. 
covert strokes we found out in Eurovision occur in about 7% of people. So there's an intriguing overlap there to say, is that there is some plausible mechanism through which perioperative brain injury could contribute to those longer term cognitive changes. And those longer term cognitive changes are evident over 20 years of, um, of data collection. So we think that they're important. And our research is really focusing now is to say, well, right, we think that there's a, about 5% of people are vulnerable to this cognitive decline. How can we identify them? We're not limiting ourselves just to COVID stroke as a potential um, a cause, but we need to understand why, the, why there's a group of people who are very vulnerable and can we protect them in the perioperative period? So Professor Sanders, to, to follow up on that, so 5.5% in the Whitehall 2 study, 7% of patients in neurovision with covert stroke. Do you think that when we're consenting or, or seeing patients who are over 65 having major surgery, should we speak specifically about um, these issues, um, given those numbers are, are relatively high and significant, and how kind of does it impact on informed consent? Yeah, we, we, we think that, um, you know, when discussing informed consent with patients, you have to be aware of obviously the frequencies. Now establishing the definitive frequency of cognitive decline in this context has been incredibly hard because of the way that different studies have defined cognitive decline and there isn't one consensus yet as to still after 20, 30 years of research for saying what cognitive decline is. And uh, I know that there've been recent guidelines on this and, and people should refer to that, but I think it is reasonable to, to embark upon a discussion with patients to warn them that of the risk of perioperative neurological complications as we would do for a peripheral nerve injury or for neuraxial blocks to think about in the perioperative period there's the potential for brain injury that brain injury can be manifested in different ways it could be short term it could be reversible it could be irreversible we're not sure but approximately five percent of people seem vulnerable and so it may be better to think about interpreting this in terms of the odds ratios. You know, you've got a doubling of your odds ratio of um, having harm today than not having harm. But the risks overall, the absolute risks are very small, 5%. Uh, and, and I think that we do need further research to understand um, the incidence and the pathophysiology of covert stroke. Um, but it is reasonable to, set, to use that sort of 5% number as a rough index for, for the vulnerability for that for those individuals undergoing non-cardiac, non-carotid surgery. Excellent. Um, in terms of, I guess, this, there was this common association between post-op delirium and cognitive decline and covert stroke. Professor Sanders, do you think there is a, these conditions are potentially operating on a a spectrum of the same disease process or pathogenesis, or do you think that there might, this might be a future direction of research or has some of your research already touched on this? Yeah, uh, that's an excellent question. So um, there's no doubt if you look at the um, associated chronic pathologies with cognitive decline that we know that cerebrovascular disease is an incredibly important cause of chronic cognitive changes. Um, it's also of interest that you can get other non-cerebrovascular um, directly related causes so there's a, obviously an interrelationship. For example, the Alzheimer's disease type um, pathologies, Alzheimer's and tau pathologies, sorry, amyloid and tau pathologies that you can develop. And our uh, research is group is interested in establishing whether you get um, changes in these what we're called now amyloid tau neurodegenerative or ATN biomarkers with changes in 
uh, change associated with delirium and long-term cognitive decline associated with surgery. So I think there is an intersection and there is an overlap in the etiology between um, cerebrovascular changes, Alzheimer's disease type changes, the infl inflammation that seems to be associated with delirium and then longer term cognitive changes. But how those uh, individual factors interrelate is uh, an open question right now. And I think that's something that, should, you know, the research in the perioperative period is really well positioned to investigate. We can get baseline information about subjects. We know when the insult surgery and anesthesia is coming. And we can study the pathological interrelationship between those factors. And I think that's gonna be illuminating for postoperative delirium and cognitive decline, but also for the whole field of dementia more generally. So Professor, you've just touched on us a little bit um, with respect to, to biomarkers. Um, so perioperatively, we can test troponin to detect covert myocardial injury. And you've done research looking at biomarkers of neuronal injury and neurofilament light. Do you think that there will be a role potentially in the future for a blood test to assess patients or to screen patients perioperatively at risk of cognitive harm? Yes. I mean, I think that um, we, we're edging very, very slowly in that direction. And I think that slow movement is appropriately cautious. Uh, firstly, we, you know, tests are expensive and invasive tests should be considered carefully and we need to have a clear interpretation for them. What our research has recently shown is that um, postoperatively, there rises in neurofilament light. In fact, that had been shown previously. But those rises are, are greater in patients who get delirium. And those rises, purport, those rises in neurofilament light, the neuronal injury biomarker, change proportionately to delirium severity. So the more severely delirious you are, the more severe neuronal injury detected by this biomarker um, it is. So that proportional relationship uh, is something that uh, we're very keen in understanding further. In our recent work, we showed that that was re related to perioperative inflammation, but that both inflammation and neuronal injury contributed separately to the etiology of uh, delirium using uh, multivariate linear regression. So we're beginning to, put to pull together some pieces to say that inflammation and neuronal injury have some overlapping uh, pathophysiology, but also some that they are separable. And there may be some individuals, for example, who have more severe neuronal injury component to their delirium and more, and some individuals who have more uh, severe inflammatory component to their delirium. How these intersect with pre-morbid conditions, pre-morbid inflammation and pre-morbid neurodegeneration is an area which needs to be explored. But I think that these perioperative biomarkers are going to become increasingly informative, but I still think that they we're at the point where they're a research tool and that we should be focusing on understanding the pathophysiology of clinical events rather than uh, um, trying to, to understand the biomarkers per se. This is one tool for us to understand delirium. Um, I do not advocate that we need to go out and start um, running neurofilament light assays when we can ask a patient some questions and get this very similar information. I guess touching on a, a similar um, topic then, and that, that being MRI brains, it's obviously you know, an expensive and invasive limited resource. What do you see as the, the role for an MRI brain in that perioperative period? And do you think we should be using it in particular, I guess, patients with delirium routinely? Or do you see that as a potential future 
investigation that may occur? Yeah, I mean, I think you've, you've got to, um, when you're investigating delirium, you, you need to start simple, like most conditions, and you need to, um, you know, normalize the physiology where you can. You need to reorientate individuals where you can, provide them with their glasses, provide them with their, their reading material, uh, work with them to get them orientated to their environment. And it's sort of amazingly uh, how effective some of the non-pharmacological interventions for delirium are. Of course, we don't really have pharmacological interventions. So, um, you know, we can try and chemically restrain a patient with antipsychotics and so forth. Um, but we, we as yet haven't got a good idea of how we can target the pathophysiology of delirium to try and prevent, um, either prevent or, or uh, ameliorate it. Now, as part of a, a pathophysiological understanding, I think MRI has an important role. And that might be largely in research at this point because of the expense you mentioned. Uh, but, you know, clinicians should be a, uh, able to uh, draw on this tool to um, identify whether they think cerebrovascular disease, an acute cerebrovascular event is associated with the delirium or not, if they think that's clinically indicated at the bedside. Possibly one can just use one's judgment to say, well, you know, this is a patient in atrial fibrillation and they're higher risk or they're not in atrial fibrillation, they're low risk for that event. But as I say, we only have a hint that these events are embolic, these covert strokes. So I don't think we're at the point of um, knowing definitively that atrial fibrillation is the primary cause of those events. So it's a jigsaw puzzle. Medicine remains a jigsaw puzzle and the MRI scan won't necessarily give you the full picture of the jigsaw. Do you have any other takeaway messages that you'd take from Neurovision um, that you'd like to add at this point? Well, I, I mean, when I look back on the Whitehall study and the Neurovision study, which both came out last year, and, and I think about what the lessons we learned, um, we, we knew that we wanted to look at the cognitive trajectory in the Whitehall study. It was really important. We knew if an individual was declining or static in their cognitive trajectory before their their admission and we wanted to um, look at how that changed after their admission because cognition is changing we know that people are declining at different rates from their middle age onwards so so to the assumption that we can capture all that variance in cognition at a single preoperative preoperative time point is is a little naive unfortunately it's the feasible way we do the research and so we need to do multiple different approaches to this but Whitehall really showed us that People who are not having surgeries are very different to people who are having surgeries. And even when we look back on the Whitehall data, it's the very first cognitive time point we had. There were differences in cognition in the people who went on to have surgeries versus the people who did not go on to have surgeries, even though they haven't had the events yet that we classified them on. So these are different groups of people. And that's really important to remember that there really isn't a control group in this observational POCD type research and that we need to look at this problem from multiple angles to get a comprehensive view of that problem. The other thing that we did in Whitehall that was really important was we adjusted out for medical admissions because surgical admissions and medical admissions tend to cluster to some, what, some extent. People who get sick for surgery get sick for medical reasons too and medical admissions had a much larger effect on cognition and surgical admissions. That might tell us something about whether general anesthesia plays a role because it's not really involved in medical admissions, but it also tells us that potentially we can overestimate the impact of a, of a single surgical admission if we don't think about the whole perioperative course of these individuals extending out into much longer periods for perioperative complications. 
that may be associated with medical admissions. So there are multiple learning um, events that occurred, but we, well, one of the reasons we, we specifically separated out the medical and surgical admissions and looked at them separately is because we fear med medical events may have a more profound effect, and that's what we found. And I think it's important to remember when thinking about all of these things that the, there aren't good controls for the surgical patients. And medical and surgical events cluster together. And actually, that also came out in Eurovision because those patients who had perioperative covert strokes also had postoperative TIAs and strokes. And I cannot say from the way that the data are presented and the way I've seen the data yet that the cognitive decline is not attributable to those postoperative TIAs and strokes, those medical events, as opposed to the perioperative events. And that's absolutely critical for us to understand. We don't want to invent the whole area of research targeted on preventing perioperative COVID strokes if they have no clinical impact, especially if it's going to be difficult. We may want to target those resources to preventing other factors that may have more meaning in the perioperative period. And we are wondering whether delirium fits that bill, and I don't have a definitive answer on that. But that's you know part of our thinking is to, to explore those events which have an obvious. Uh, effect that I can see as a clinician at the bedside, rather than look for biomarker changes, which are without don't have a clear, obvious event. So I think perioperative COVID strokes could be really important. I think we're on, we have really good evidence from Neurovision that we need to do more research in this area. Um, and I, and I, I really am optimistic that we will do more research in this area, but I don't think we've solved it to the point where we need to change clinical practice just yet. How do you see professor sanders that we might delineate between uh covert stroke and i guess that ongoing increased risk of tias and strokes itself how do you how yeah, do you see so, this? so you know one of the ways you, you'd be useful to know preoperatively are these patients having multiple covert strokes and that the incident um that the, the event rate clusters in that period in time or whether these are de novo events that these patients never had covert strokes before and they start having them in the perioperative period. So that would be a really interesting um, factor. If, if we are generating de novo, brand new cerebrovascular disease in the perioperative period, that's a major public health issue that we need to address. If we're, what we do is we provoke some inflammation and the people who are getting COVID strokes all the time cluster be around that time of inflammation, we might say, okay, so we want to target the inflammation. We might say these patients are destined to have these events and we need to be thinking more chronically over many years beforehand about their COVID stroke risk. But the, all of these interpretations depend on the data you have, the lens, if you like, to look at the problem. And until we look at it from multiple angles, it's really hard to know precisely what we should be targeting. Professor Sanders, thanks very much for your time this afternoon. Um, I think you've, it's been a really illuminating discussion. I've learned a lot about the complexities that are involved in, in treating these patients and how it's not a single kind of issue problem and, and, and all of the all of the things that tie into cognitive decline. So thank you again for your time. Yeah, thank you very much.